Hello and welcome to our special event on Ukraine, its economy, stabilization, rebuilding, and the role of the EBRD. I am Beata Javocic, the EBRD's chief economist, and it's my pleasure to welcome you all to this important and timely discussion. It's been nine months since Russia invaded Ukraine. This is a terrible humanitarian tragedy, but the war has also seriously damaged Ukraine's economy. It now faces daunting challenges, not least maintaining macroeconomic and financial stability under Russia's bombardment. In our discussion today, we will be attempting to solve a complex puzzle. What kind of policies and investment can support the country's real economy in the here and now, in wartime, and in the future when peace returns? Our first discussion, which I will be chairing, is entitled Sustainable Macroeconomic Policies for the War and Beyond. It will focus on Ukraine's current needs and assessing what they may look like in the future. Our second discussion, led by Matteo Patrone, our MD for Eastern Europe and the Caucasus, will look at investment in the real economy and the role of the EBRD. But before I begin, just a few housekeeping tips. This event is also being streamlined on the EBRD.com, Facebook, and LinkedIn. For those of you watching online, please post your questions in the comments below the video, and we will come back to them towards the end of both discussions. So, on to policies. Extraordinary challenges must be matched by extraordinary policies stated the report Macroeconomic Policies for Wartime Ukraine, issued in August by the Center for Economic Policy Research. It outlined policies to put the Ukrainian economy on a sustainable trajectory for the duration of the war. And today we are lucky to be joined by one of its authors, as well as the EBRD's president. So let me introduce our distinguished guest who will help us shed some light on these complex challenges. We will be joined by Odile Renaud-Basson, president of the EBRD, Timofey Milovanov, president of the Kiev School of Economics, Torbjörn Becker, professor of economics at the Stockholm Institute of Transition Economies and CPR. So welcome to all of you. It's great to have you with us. So let me begin by taking the print temperature on the ground. What is the current state of Ukraine's economy? Timofey, let me start with you. Thank you very much. Thank you for organizing this. It's a privilege to be here. And thank you for the EBRD to be a good or great friend of Ukraine throughout these years of transition and um, helping us. I was a minister at the time, um, helping us even during those times when there's, uh, we really needed help even in peacetime and there is no investment. And the EBRD was always a leader showing both the governance and providing funding and being being kind of a, a pathway for Ukraine to develop. And during the war, the EBRD has stepped up the support even more, be providing even contracts which helped to ensure certain war risks um, implicitly, indirectly. So without the EBRD, probably the Ukrainian economy wouldn't, be, wouldn't have that resilience which it has and has demonstrated throughout the war. The, we are in the war economy, de facto, so there are some market private economy mechanisms, but Ukraine relies on the international support uh, fundamentally, and it will continue for a while 
um, after the war as well. The budget deficit runs between three to $5 billion. Um, there are commitments around the world to support it, uh, but Ukraine really needs it. It cannot raise enough taxes uh, to be able to finance both military expenditure and social expenditure. The budget has become very simple. It's basically military and salaries. There's very limited amount of um, investment. Um, uh, of course, there is some uh, critical infrastructure rebuilding. And as the winter goes on, as the Russia continues to target systemically, uh, uh, systematically the uh, critical infrastructure, the actual needs for immediate support, immediate rebuilding will continue to increase. So in my view, those numbers that we hear about and those which are in the budget of 38, $36 billion uh, needed support, they are uh, unfortunately, in my view, are underestimated. Um, the support will be will 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 be needed, and it will increase. The um, labor force, while the numbers, while it's difficult to get uh, um, reliable estimates during the war, um, in any situation in any country, uh, the central bank and the cabinet are doing a, a superb job in in having some data, nonetheless. Um, and that's great that there's been structural reforms since 2014 that allowed new methods of estimation to come in. So we have some numbers. The estimates range, uh, but they sent around 30% of labor force being unemployed, which is a huge number. And uh, therefore, uh, social um, issues, so social support will continue to be critical. Uh, there are some absorption mechanisms through um, so, uh, safety social nets and volunteering equipment and some relocation and also IDPs and immigration, but it's still limited. Uh, the GDP um, is expected to fall 30, 35 different, uh, up to 50%. I think this number will continue to grow. At the same time, there is an informal economy. Informal economy is rising. A lot of this is not priced. Just to give an example, at the Kiev School of Economics, we opened a shelter for all academics. You know, if you're working in a university, you can come in to us and, and uh, continue to teach from the Kiev School of Economics. But that's not price. That's not going to be reflected in any calculations. But there is a lot of this uh, resilience and the fragility and adjustment which is happening. Uh, and of course, we were donated generators, which, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars value. Uh, for us and for shelters around. And we're, we have, we're building about 100 shelters uh, in different schools. All that is not priced. All that is not going to be reflected. So while we will see official numbers of GDP dropping by, you know, uh, unbelievably high amounts, there's a lot of informal economy which is coming in. <clears throat> During the war, uh, the economy will continue to be mobilized. The government expenditures and uh, uh, will grow. Private consumption continue to drop and it will be all diverted to the war effort. After the war, there'll be reconstruction, uh, but I think the key is uh, to ensure proper governance and transparency and accountability uh, and a coordination process. And there are some disagreements about this and that the work needs to be sped up. The macro and fiscal economic policies, uh, and that will be my last, uh, I guess, point. It's very difficult to talk about macro and fiscal policies while there are missiles landing in all cities and we need generators and uh, energy is being shut off and water too. Uh, but at the same time, um, the central bank has done a fantastic job during the war. The, the, the confidence in the banking and financial system is there. There has not been bank runs a single in during the war. 
which is uh, remarkable. But at the same time, um, they moved away from inflation targeting. Inflation targeting is, you know, it's not a sustainable policy during war. It's not even relevant uh, because the uh, monetary transmission mechanism is not there. Um, so they moved to a PEG and they can't support the PEG. So they, it's now crawling PEG where from time to time they have to devalue. They need to find the nominal anchor, um, which is not a PEG. And uh, uh, it will take some time because there are political constraints on being able to do that. And they need to limit synergy and printing. On the fiscal policies, taxation is difficult, but you have to coordinate with the monetary policy. You cannot run two separate policies that continues to be an issue. So there, while there are uh, policy issues, Ukraine has done extremely well. The economy is falling, but the informal economy is, uh, is coming up. And the uh, immediate, immediate threat is critical infrastructure in this winter. Thank you. Thank you very much, Timofey, for this opening statement, for giving us a sense of what's happening on the ground in this very comprehensive manner. So now let me go to Torbjörn, who is one of the authors of the CPR report. Uh, Torbjörn, you also monitor what is happening. So uh, please give us your perspective. Thank you. Yeah, I, I of course, cannot add the same uh, uh, local perspective as Timofey is doing. So I'm going to give you a bit the broader outlook that's probably colored by my many years at the IMF. So I'll, I'll be a little bit more on, on the helicopter view, if you want. But I think in, in all of these discussions, of course, as Timofey also has been pointing out, we, we have to understand that the first priority is, is really that Ukraine needs the resources to protect its country from the Russian aggression. Uh, without this, all of our discussions about you know, fiscal policies, monetary policies, etc., cetera, uh, is, is kind of mute. And, and not only that, but if, if we don't get sort of Ukraine, the military support and, and support to defend itself that it needs now, the bill that we economists are talking about here is just an ever increasing bill. There's sort of no end to it if, if we don't make sure that Ukraine can end this war in, in a a decent manner uh, in the near future. But but then, of course, if I turn now to, to the discussion about uh, the, the financial situation or the economic situation more generally, um, of course, what we can do on top of, of, of helping Ukraine defend its territory is provide funding. So at least Ukraine can avoid a full-scale uh, economic and financial crisis. And this is, of course, a risk. Uh, as Timofey also already talked about, official GDP numbers are talking about a decline of 35%, maybe. And we understand that if, if on top of that, the government needs to spend something in the order of 20% of GDP on military expenditure, and there's not much room to increase taxes, we really need to think about how the government is going to be able to fund the, this type of budget. Um, what, what has happened in the past is that the central bank helped out by printing money basically to support the budget. Um, most of us economists would say that this is not sustainable. You can do that for a while, but if you keep doing that, you create lots of inflation, you can destabilize the currency, you can then also destabilize the whole financial system. So this is a very obvious thing then where the outside world can help Ukraine. So the alternative to printing money at this stage 
it's really the the donors or the international community can provide Ukraine with with finances from abroad. Um, this will then help with the government's budget. Uh, it will also help Ukraine to finance imports of, of goods that it cannot really produce itself in the current war uh, situation. So that type of support will help both with the external balance and with the government and internal balance. So this is really, you know, a very critical juncture where where the the outside world needs to step up. And and just to come into some details then how this should be done. I think most of us agree that the US has been quite forthcoming in terms of both military and financial support. And also, unfortunately, that EU countries and EU as a, a, a union has really not delivered at the same level. We now also have this discussion right now going on with the support package that is being blocked by Hungary. Um, we should remember that, let's say we take Timofei's number of 50 billion uh, in needed support over 2023. This sounds like an enormous amount of money. At the same time, EU countries are spending probably 10 times as much just subsidizing energy to its households and companies at this stage. So, you know, just taking 10% of use for subsidies for energy and send it to Ukraine instead that would basically take care of, of the government's financing needs over 2023. So I think this is really where we need to focus our attention now. I think we need to tell our politicians here in Europe that it's time that we step up and, and deliver this support to Ukraine. We need to do this in a predictable manner. We should uh, preferentially do this in terms of grants rather than loans. But of course, loans is what the EU can, can actually generate now so um, but but anyway I think we all understand that not supporting Ukraine today is really an enormous risk not only for Ukraine but also for the whole of Europe so this is really a, an obvious win-win situation where we can help Ukraine end this war thank you thank you very much uh, Torbjörn um, so let's stop for a minute and, and talk about um, financing of the war in our latest transition report, we looked at 200 years of history of wars, and we looked at how financing of wars has changed over time. And indeed, we see that printing money has gone out of fashion after World War I. Um, collecting taxes is clearly not feasible during war efforts. Um, so what we see is increased reliance on domestic borrowing, as well as in particular increased reliance on foreign financing. That has been particularly the experience since uh, the end of, the, of World War II. So it very much uh, sort of echoes what both of you have mentioned about um, the need for external financing and external support uh, for Ukraine. Now, uh, let me move to Odil. Odil was uh, in Kiev. She met with President Zelensky a couple months ago. So, Odil, what were your impressions and how can the EBRD help? Thank you. Thank you, Beata. And, uh, and thanks to the previous speakers, I think, to give their views and uh, um, for explaining what is first the situation on the ground and, and then what the international community should be doing. When I was uh, in Ukraine, so it was um, when the 
attacks from Russia on infrastructure had already started. And I think what struck me the most was uh, the resilience of um, all everybody I met uh, from uh, the president uh, to the prime minister to all the, the whole government and also the people in, in the city. Um, when uh, with beginning, it was the beginning of some blackout, much less than today, I believe, but uh, it was also less cold, but um, the, the capacity of uh, people to resist and to stand, um, despite the challenges, the difficulties, the alerts um, and the uh, disruption, is absolutely amazing. It's true for, I mean, from, um, as I was saying, everybody, including the banking sector, including the, I mean, business activities going on uh, despite uh, uh, all these challenging. And I also, what I found extremely striking is the determination and the calm of the country, of the people uh, to deal with and to, to deal with the situation. So I really think that force admiration and, uh, and full respect. For international support, I fully agree. And this is a message I think I've been repeating also. It's very important to provide support to Ukraine now, uh, because the more we can uh, support the country and the economy now, the less costly. First of all, it gives them I mean, the chance, the capacity to be able to stand the war and to, to resist and to uh, win. But also, it will reduce uh, the cost of the reconstruction and recovery. Um, so I think this is absolutely key, and it's what is needed is, as it was mentioned, budget support in order to be able to, to, to give the government the capacity to sustain the daily expenditure, and in particular pension, uh, wages, and minimum social benefits to keep the society uh, functioning and then to support people in, in the dire needs, but also support to the real economy. And in a way, in the international organization, there had been a sort of split of responsibility or, I mean, each organization focusing on what is best for World Bank, um, IMF focusing on providing support, uh, budget for the, uh, support for the budget through um, managing funds given by uh, donor countries or land, uh, either through form of grants or land loans. And we've been focusing at VRD more on the real economy, how to um, support the private sector, but also key infrastructure. And um, this has been the case since, uh, I mean, March 2022. And we see now the, the absolute need to accelerate on um, the reconstruction, I mean, rapid reconstruction uh, for infrastructure in order to address the blackout uh, risk and uh, the destruction that are taking place. Um, to do so, uh, because we are a bank, we called for sharing, I mean, sharing the risk with donors. And uh, our strategy has been to take um, half of the risk on our balance sheet and get donor support for half of the risk. Our objective is to um, provide 3 billion of financing between 2022 and 2023. And, uh, um, and we really managed to get a lot of donor support uh, in order to, I mean, I mean either to form of, in the form of guarantees or in the form of grants to be managed in order to provide support. And this has been focusing on electricity network, railway company, 
private sector, but also trade finance, because keeping the trade finance open and, and capacity to import and export is absolutely key. We also now are focusing on municipalities. In terms of overall support, I agree that what is extremely important, first of all, is agility and the capacity to react to evolving situation, because um, the war, I mean, in a situation of war, the military tactics evolve, the needs are evolving, and so the reactivity of international community is, is very important. There has been some reactivity. I think we must acknowledge the fact that it seems, according to me, I think Ukraine has been the country which has been the most supported, received the most level of support in terms of budgetary support in the last, I mean, in, in the, in, since World War II. Of course, it's exceptional circumstances. Um, this war is absolutely dramatic. So it's legitimate that there is such a level of support, but there is a strong level of support. But agility is important and also predictability. And that has been challenging because it has been difficult, in particular in the EU. And there are, we see there are still challenges um, in view of yesterday's uh, discussion in, in ECOFIN to be able to give, I mean, a clear commitment with expected uh, delivery and time frame for the government to be able to plan. And um, so that the, the efforts to be able to continue to deliver and to be up to the needs, because as it was mentioned, it's also quite clear that needs are likely to evolve um, is, is very important. In that respect, I think the fact that IMF um, has now defined a sort of a program um, without funding, but board monitored program is a good step forward. Of course, a full-fledged program would be um, would be the next step, but uh, it's a good, it's a first basis to have a common understanding in the international community and with the Ukrainian authorities of what are the needs, um, how much is needed, when, and it gives a framework for donors. Uh, to contribute to and to have visibility of how much they need to put on the table. Um, I think complementary to that, uh, we need to ensure that, um, as it was mentioned also, um, there is good governance in terms of using the funds and the World Bank has been working on that. We are working on that with our own financing, working with SOEs and, and the private sector, because it's of course very important to, to be accountable of the use of the resources that are, that are um, devoted to support Ukraine. So I agree that the effort will need to be prolonged and, and sustained, and um, it's, it's likely to be uh, a challenge. I think mobilization of politis political leaders will be very important in order to explain to uh, taxpayers in the different countries that this is needed, legitimate, and better to do it now than later, because the more we support Ukraine now, the less we will have. And the, less costly the recovery, the reconstruction will be, even if we all know that the reconstruction effort will require a lot of support also. Thank you very much, Odile, for painting this very comprehensive um, picture. Now, as Odile rightly pointed out, um, what is happening now will determine uh, how much effort will be needed during the reconstruction. And I think what has been quite remarkable about the Ukrainian government is that even in the midst of war, it hasn't lost sight of the long term. 
of the implication of its policies to on the long term and to the extent possible um, has tried to avoid um, things such as uh, printing money. Now, when we talk about reconstruction, a lot of focus is on rebuilding physical capital. But of course, human capital will be equally, if not more important. And the best way of ensuring that human capital will be there when the war is over is to create conditions so that people can survive the winter and so that there is no more waves of refugees. So Timothy, could you tell us a bit about the situation on the ground, how people are coping, what can be done to help them stay in the country during the winter? People are responding very quickly. It's amazing how quickly adaptation and adjustment happens. Uh, we all have witnessed that with Ukraine. Uh, <laughs> and uh, there probably is a culture or something in the DNA coming from the 30 years of uh, revolutions, resistance, and a lot of crises. Ukraine has been through a lot of um, major changes. And so uh, I've seen, um, just to give it a real touch, I've seen, you know, my, my mother-in-law, my wife's uh, mother, um, she lives in a typical Soviet Union built apartment block, which is centrally heated. So they have all those problems when the water goes off or the heating goes off, they don't have electricity, they don't have heating. And she's adapting, you know, she has those two thermoses and whenever she has hot water or electricity is there, she boils water, she stores that. And she always has enough hot water to have oatmeal in the, in the morning, you know, breakfast. And then uh, uh, she also put candles in her oven and a tiny baking tin on top of it. So actually she can, you know, fry some eggs in the evening when she says she comes from a hospital where she works as a doctor. And she comes back and they, she says, usually they don't have electricity and they don't have heating. So she can, she can uh, turn those uh, um, candles on and she can uh, fry some food, some eggs and something and have some food. She's preparing, she's like uh, creating a sort of Ukrainian kimchi sauerkraut, you know. She, she takes veggies, she cuts them, she puts them next to a... Um, heater so they, they it's, it ferments faster put salt in there in that way she will have veggies over winter uh she the fridge is not working she puts food outside in the balcony it's it's a um so it's a little bit of um you know of a fridge it keeps around zero so people are you know people are adjusting she gets heating on and off uh she she has warm clothing and she insulated the apartment it actually looks almost normal you know it's almost normal but it's just too much, you know? And that's how the entire country is adopting. You know, when we get heating, we warm up our apartments. We all keep water because uh, we realize when the heat, you know, when there is a missile attack, the water goes off and that means uh, not only drinking water, it means sewers, it means uh, uh, waste uh, management issues. It means all kinds of things. So, so you get used to it. You, you, we will get through this. We will get through this. We all are setting up generators at, at our university. We put sleeping bags, we put caramats in so that students can stay overnight. And now our attendance uh, um, is all time high. Everyone is here at the university. Everyone studies math on, you know, they're not doing it. We all have hybrid classes, but now everyone wants to be in person because it's very different from the pandemic. People are looking 
to forward to seeing each other. They need social support. And we, when people get together, there's this positive energy of we're overcoming it. You know, not today we say to Russia. Actually, we say never to Russia. And uh, it, it is a very community spirit. We economists are not used talking to it about, you know, too much. But what, what people need is to provide them with minimal infrastructure. We need to have electricity at least now and then. That heating comes up regularly, that our pipes are warm and the walls of the buildings can keep positive temperature. That's critical because, for example, if pipes freeze, then the water will have to be drained. And that means Kiev or any other city like Odessa, which was hit on Monday, won't have I mean, we are fortunate that Odessa is positive temperature, but Kiev was negative, below freezing on, on Monday. If Kiev were hit, and it's great, you know, thank you, our air defense, and thank you, support of the international partners. Uh, you know, our air defense in Kiev shut down the, the missiles going to our power plants. But if, for example, we, didn't, we, would, uh, we would lose heating on Monday, and it would stay like that for a couple of days, we would have to drain the water from central heating. That would mean no heating until the spring. Basically means uh, stoves, fireplaces, all kinds of, you know, or maybe evacuation of kids. So all kinds of things. Are, uh, so in pragmatic terms, what we need is water supply uh, operational and heating operational now and then that the apartments stay warm, at least somewhat warm, that we don't need to drain the system. So this is important. The rest, people will adjust. It's not going to be fun. It's going to be difficult. There'll be, uh, you know, everyone doing what it can. Uh, what they can. We at KC, for example, private company, but we are trying to set up help shelters across to the school across from us. You know, we're letting neighbors come in when there's a blackout, you know, just people from the streets. Uh, we're, we're drilling a well, I'll tell you that. Maybe, I don't know if it's even legal, but we need water. We were trying to install a septic tank. We need that. You know, I, you know we might not be able to get uh, paperwork in time, but we're going to do that. And we're learning... Uh, from Mikolaev or Kharkiv or Dnipro, what they have done. We, we're picking up uh, tips from them. So there's a lot of uh, innovation, agility, knowledge sharing, and community support. That's the feel. I, I, my reaction both is emotional that I want to cry, but I'm also very proud of all of this, of how people come together and overcome. This is something, you know, Russia shows something really bad, like a bad side of humanity, a dark side of humanity. It's not just Putin anymore, you know? It's like millions of people who are cheering at uh, shooting missiles at civilians. And that's a dark side of humanity. Ukraine shows the, the opposite, the bright side of humanity, how people can come together and overcome their differences, collect resources so that they can get through this. And we will get through this because the humanity is strong. Humans are strong. And thank you for your support. You know, I'm sorry I'm going a little bit out of the usual economic uh, evidence-based, the uh, cold-minded, uh, data-driven discussion, but you asked me, you know, how it is on the ground. This is how it feels on the ground. Dark Russia, br very bright Ukraine, overcoming the challenges, but challenges are serious. Thank you very much, Timothy. I mean, it's this dose of reality and um, Thank you for showing and discuss this remarkable resilience and uh, creativity when it comes to dealing with the crisis. You know, that contrasts um, very much with, um, you know, today in London, we are supposed to have slightly negative temperatures and there are already weather alerts on TV. And I think people in Western Europe have no idea what it means to be uh, in the middle of the war when there is no heating and, and water supply is intermittent. Um, 
as Odile mentioned, it's incredibly important to keep voters in Western countries uh, informed and to explain to them why these transfers to Ukraine are needed. And a common theme that um, appears in the discussions is, well, how do we know that the money will be spent well? After all, Ukraine was not a model of governance uh, before the war. And I know that Torbjörn has written a chapter for the upcoming CPR book. Um, so Torbjörn, would you like to say a few words about that, about institutions and changes in institutions? What has been done and what is needed? Thank you. Yes, that's the constant question you get when you discuss sending money to Ukraine. And I want to mention that, of course, I did not write this chapter alone, but Timofey, as well as Natalia Shapoval from the Kiev School and some colleagues from SITE were all part of, of this project. But again, just to come back to the real issue here, I think we, we all ask this question, you know, is it dangerous to send money to Ukraine? Will it just disappear somewhere? So I think when, when you have the war going on, we have to understand that this is a very strict conditionality in terms of using the funds for what it was supposed to be used for. If, if Ukraine is basically wasting donors' monies today, they're going to lose the war. So I think, you know, when the war is going on, I, I would not really be so worried about uh, misuse of funds. Of course, then we have the second part of this discussion is when the war is over and, and there's going to be lots of money flowing in for the reconstruction process, I think it is really important that everyone understands how the money is used, not just taxpayers in Europe or in the US, but also the people of Ukraine. This is really their money. They are the ones that are rebuilding their country. So this idea of, of transparency, monitoring, reporting, and involving civil society, etc. This is both for the taxpayers in Europe, but foremost, I would say, for the people of Ukraine. They have all of their lives at stake at this point, and we may have like a tenth of a percent of our GDP going in, in, in this direction. So I think we need to, to remember this. And really then to, to understand how can we then promote transparency and monitoring, etc. I think it's extremely important that the international donor community comes together together with the Ukrainian government, organizes a common platform where you have these discussions, you prioritize projects, you have regular audits, you monitor, you follow up, you publish what you have done with the money. So that sort of basic, very strict, you know, coordination, reporting and monitoring will be crucial to achieve exactly what you say, to be able to tell taxpayers in, in Europe what they have uh, sort of what the money has been used for, but also then also showing this to the Ukrainian population to, to have their voice in this whole process of, of reconstruction of Ukraine. And then, of course, there are lots of other reforms that we discuss in this chapter, basically aiming at removing the opportunities of corruption that we have seen in the past in Ukraine, different schemes of, of you know, getting funds from the the common pool of resources to private uh, interests. And, and there's a long list of that, and I will not really go into the details of, of this in this discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, now, 
the needs are there. The needs are great. Um, everybody agrees that support is needed, that everybody agrees in principle to, to send money to Ukraine. Odil, what are the constraints on the side of policymakers in the Western countries that are supporting Ukraine? Um, why is it difficult and challenging for them sometimes to, to gather these funds and the support? I mean, I think it's it's difficult because um, because of course you always when you have to take funding decision you always have to have to, to decide between one priority and another and uh, and in Europe for example in the typing and it was this was mentioned um, before by by Sorbonne. Um, there is a huge impact of energy prices. So people, I mean, high inflation level, um, high energy bills, uh, uh, winter also, I mean, and, and you made the comparison, I mean, nothing compared with the suffering of the people in Ukraine, but of course people in Europe and are feeling also the impact. And at some point, I mean, it, it may be, there may question the effort um, and, and, the, and the support, uh, financial support for Ukraine. So I think that's why it's so important. And I must say, I, I believe that up to now, the Ukrainian government and president have been very effective in mobilizing the public opinion and uh, um, ensuring that uh, people support, understand the challenge, share the, I mean, and, and show solidarity, not only in that solidarity in, in receiving refugees, and, and I think European countries have reacted uh, very positively, openly on, on the refugee crisis, um, and, uh, uh, and, but also in providing uh, financial support for the reconstruction. So I think, but, but then it's always difficult to have to take this kind of, of budgetary decision, but it, and it needs to be the, as the effort needs to be sustained, it needs to be clearly explained and communicating and being able to address the issue of transparency and giving confidence that uh, the money will be well spent and um, there will be um, no corruption is extremely important. That's why um, I fully agree with what I said about the need to have sort of monitoring, uh, reporting framework, in particular in the reconstruction. I think what we institution like EBRD is doing now is also providing confidence because we have been very much involved in Ukraine. We know our partners. We have processes uh, that helps ensuring that um, the money is uh, spent for the purpose we uh, allocate it. So I, I think that's a key element to of, of building confidence and and trust. And um, and otherwise, the effort that, that needs to be done is to convince and to continue to convince people that. Um, as I was saying, it's, bet, it's very important to support Ukraine now for, uh, for the war, because if there is no support, Ukraine cannot stand the war. I think that it's very clear. It's both true on the military side, but also on the financial budget side. This is absolutely crucial for Ukraine to be able to, um, to win the war. Thank you very much, Odile. Timothy, if I can come back to macroeconomics, um, you were mentioning the interplay between fiscal and monetary policies, the need for coordination. Um, could you perhaps tell us a bit more about what was done well on the macroeconomic policy front and where the upcoming challenges lie? 
Thank you. Yeah. Um, I apologize. We got an outage here and uh, I, I, I had to switch to a different Wi-Fi. Uh, so I might not be able to have an upstream on, uh, on, uh, on the video. Uh, but um, let me, let me get to the, to the, to the issue of the, um, of the coordination of the policy and what has been done. First of all, let's go into the central bank. During the war, the monetary transmission mechanism is essentially dead because the market doesn't work. So, uh, and the government does a lot of uh, direct uh, mobilization of the economy and even pricing controls. Um, and therefore the, the, the pricing mechanisms don't work as well as they work in the, in the, um, in the peacetime. And um, on top of that, there's still some market going on. It's just, uh, and um, let's look even at the volunteer activities or supplies for the military or for people, for social support. A lot, there is a market for this. People are paying, people are paying market prices. People are doing, uh, people, uh, people are doing even investment in some production facilities. People are doing relocation. So, so it's a very uh, hybrid situation where uh, in some industries, in some areas, essentially there is no market, or you know, market is dominated by the government regulation, and in in others uh, there is still market. So it becomes an interplay not only of the monetary and fiscal policy, but also of regulation or deregulation. Because some licensing goes off, some price controls are being established or not. So these are three policies interacting now at the same time. What becomes critical on the operational level that the government talks to each other. These ideas of checks and balances and independence, they get challenged because in the before the war, the central bank is independent. The uh, competition authority is independent. The uh, legal system which confiscates assets is independent um, from each other. Then there's judicial. I mean, it's not ideal in Ukraine, like in any developing democracy, but uh, at least, you know, we know that the central bank policies are set up to be independent, very difficult to change. Uh, the national um, uh, RNBO, national security committees are independent. So now they all have to coordinate. Because if you mobilize an asset, which let's say has been owned by Russia and it's a critical infrastructure or by Russian capital, it matters for pricing, let's say of oil or gas or something or petrol, you know, uh, could be all kinds of things. So you have to coordinate and that coordination has been happening. Uh, it's extremely, uh, you know, it's extremely uh, well done uh, and it has been done very quickly. Second concern you have is also not your typical concern. It's a bandwidth capacity of the government everywhere. Do they get overwhelmed by the operational and tactical uh, uh, issues that they don't have any ability to think one week ahead or one month ahead? Could they even put a budget for the next year together with it, not, not just on the paper, but it has some meaning to it? Apparently they can. So we have seen the budget being passed early this year and it's more or less, uh, more or less, uh, I mean, it's not more or less, it's exactly the best you can hope for. Of course, during the war, the uncertainty around the budget is huge and it will have to be revised. So in that sense, fiscal policy is done well. Taxation, all kinds of issues are being immediately addressed. I know there are, uh, there are VAT returns pressure. There has been uh, some other pressures, but that's coming from the fact that the government is trying not to print money and also reflects this coordination between the central bank and fiscal policy. Now, it's not about interest rate per se. It's about, you know, do we return VAT? Or, yeah, we do, but then we print money because the support from, let's say, the West is not coming on time. Uh, international support becomes part of the policy too. 
That's a third, uh, fourth, excuse me, fiscal, regulatory policy and monetary, but now international support. Why? It's not even the amount which matters, but the time of disbursement which matters. Because you might have, cash flow is relevant. You might have a great PL, you might have commitment to get tens of billions of dollars, but if they're not coming when they need it, then you either need to tax more, suppressing the economy, which is very fragile, or you need to print money, destabilizing the economy and uh, risking a hyper, uh, hyperinflation. So, so this is uh, actually a force policy, which Ukraine doesn't control at all, but has to be a part of that. So in that sense, I think what the challenges are coordination, bandwidth, and uh, understanding the bigger or broader scope of policies and moving outside of the standard frameworks, respecting independence and checks and balances, but also allowing the government to coordinate. Uh, and that has been done well. What has not been done very well and uh, is, is this, um, um, predictability of international support. That is an issue. It's not even the amount. We all are talking about the amount, but predictability is important, that the cash flow is smooth. It has to be smoother because uh, the uh, devaluation in the summer, during the summer, and uh, the printing of the money in the summer is actually was caused by the fact that the money was first come, but a little bit uh, later. So you have seen a reverse pressure on the exchange rate later, but it was too late. It was devalued. So, so, you know, like that needs to be coordination. So more coordination between the international support and Ukrainian policies, uh, more uh, um, predictability on that. But within Ukraine, I guess also we need more, so more attention towards providing companies which are healthy, but struggling with liquidity so they can get through the war. That's not being talked about, why? because neither international system or domestic are set up for this. Domestic doesn't have funding to give to companies which are not producing immediately, but are critical for the future, for reconstruction. Uh, international, there is no collateral, there is no system. But think of the, a lot of businesses, private, small and medium businesses in Ukraine, which are critical infrastructure for rebuilding economy. They might not necessarily be critical now, but they're critical as seeds, seed businesses. For, for the future reconstruction. And I think they are being heard. So two issues I would like to flag. One is um, the predictability of support and coordination of the, uh, of the international and domestic uh, actions. And the second one is paying attention to this little blind spot businesses, which are critical for the reconstruction, but are not necessarily critical now. Thank you very much, Timofey. Um, I think my video may have frozen. Uh, but I hope that you can hear me. Okay, excellent. Um, now, uh, Torbjörn talked about debt versus so loans versus grants. Uh, Torbjörn, would you like to say a few words about debt? Uh, is this a big concern going forward in Ukraine? How should the government be structuring borrowing? Yes, thank you. So again, the most important thing here today is to get the resources needed to Ukraine. And if that's grants or loans in the short run may not be so important. It's really important that we avoid printing money uh, as we have, have been discussing now several times. But after the war, in the reconstruction process, in the discussions becoming an EU member, etc., etc., I think we, we do have a problem that could be built up. If, if we put too much loans on the balance sheets of Ukraine, there will sooner or later have to be some debt reconstruction discussion. Um, 
And, you know, depending on the political circumstances when this discussion takes place, that can be quite uh, difficult to, to put it mildly. It could be a lot of discussions about, look, now Ukraine is not fulfilling its promises. It's not, you know, repaying the debts on time, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, either we have a very good plan for, for how, we recon how we do restructuring of debt already now, or we make sure that most of the funds that we send Ukraine's way today is going to be in, in uh, grants rather than loans. Then, of course, you can have, you know, loans to the private sector or to other parts of the economy that generates its own revenues to pay for the debts. That's that's kind of a normal thing. But at the macro level, there are certainly limits to where debt becomes a problem. Even if it's not a problem, it's going to be there for a long time, you know, if we're not talking about a 35-year loan from the European Union. So um, again, I think there are good reasons to to make sure that Ukraine gets most of its support in forms of grants rather than loans. Um, thank you very much. Now let me move on to questions from the audience. And there is a question for you, Odil. We talked about grants versus loans. Are there any signs that the international community is willing to move towards grants next year rather than just focusing on loans? Um, just, I would like to come back on the issue of predictability first before addressing, because I think indeed predictability is key. And that's why I believe that the fact now to have this uh, board monitor program will be very important, very helpful, because it gives some visibility on, uh, I mean, what are the, as I was saying, what are the needs, when, and so forth. And I think there is, after the challenges of, of the, you know, quick reaction after the beginning of the war and so forth, a big and a real understanding now that predictability is important. And I really hope that the EU will manage to get its um, package through because then it will give, I mean, very clear, I mean, a level of commitment for the budget on which we clear disbursement um, steps and, and so forth, and avoiding to have to coordinate whether it's money put by, by I mean, member states or the EU Commission. And now, now, if they manage to get this 18 billion package under, I mean, um, approved, it would be a big step forward in terms of predictability, having in mind that on the US side, predictability has been much better. So I think that there is a sort of catch up from the EU side that is taking place and hopefully it will work. On grants, we already, I mean, and the issue of debt sustainability. So the issue is becoming more and I mean more and more important, I believe, and there is a better understanding that, um, of course, the longer the war is uh, um, uh, taking place, the higher level of support, um, bigger the question of uh, sustainability will be, and we see some countries already moving towards providing more grant financing. This is, for example, the case of Norway. They provided us. 200 million um, euros in order to help buying gas. Uh, and this complement alone we are providing to Naftogas. So I think this is a sign. And Netherlands, for example, that's also providing some grants. So there is some movement in some countries, some understanding that there is a need for, um, for grants and it's better, it would help with long-term sustainability. This being said, I think that for the short term, what is really important to provide support and liquidity. 
And with the understanding that at some point of time, they may need, there may be a need for that restructuring. And I think this is something which is already well understood because the government has already restructured some loans, some bonds, uh, some SOEs have also restructured some bonds. So there is this clear understanding that um, at some point of time, they may need, a be, uh, may need a debt restructuring. What will be very important, however, because I'm talking from an MDB perspective is that the uh, MDB preferred creditor status will be preserved because this is the only way for us to continue to be able to support Ukraine. But I think in the way we manage now our financing and the guarantees, there is this clear understanding that um, there may be at some point for the bilateral debt, uh, some, uh, some debt restructuring. But it's very difficult now to uh, be more specific because it will depend very much on when and how the reconstruction will take place. Because indeed, for example, in supporting the private sector, there could be, I mean, the capacity to repay. The, if, when we move into the reconstruction, there could be a strong rebound and so forth. So it's very, I mean, there is this uncertainty and this issue of debt level. And the more the war is prolonged, the higher this issue will, will become. But, but, um, but for the time being, I think the emergency is really to provide uh, some financing whatever form in order to uh, provide the needed liquidity to the government and to the companies. Thank you, Odile. Um, let me take some questions from the audience. I think we have rather little time left. So I will go first to Torbjörn and then to Timofi uh, for short, very short answers to these questions. So one question is about finding the best way of raising capital from the private sector. How can we get private sector to take on this risk? Um, second question in particular to Timofi, um, Ukraine is effectively run by volunteers. Do you have a sense of the size of that effort and its contribution to the GDP? And finally, uh, if any of you would like to comment quickly on commodity trade in particular with respect to supply chains. So Torbjörn, two minutes from your side. Sorry for being slow. Which question did you want me to address? Uh, whatever, we are, whichever you would like to address, or you can just give us your concluding thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I, can I maybe say something about human capital that we discussed briefly? Because I think the Kiev School of Economics that Timofey is running is really one of the great examples. And I think we're now at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And, and traditionally, a lot of these efforts have been going towards rebuilding the hard things, bridges, roads, houses, and that's what we put numbers on up. But I, I just think it's very, very important that the European Union maybe in particular and, and, and other donors think about how to support the development of human capital, not just the migration aspect of it, but really taking care of education gaps that, that are arising now as, as the war is going on. So I, I would just want to put in that small small note here at the end that we really need to find uh, a focus on, on helping people getting education and being part of the reconstruction when it, it starts. So that that's kind of my, my wish uh, in, in this kind of discussion that we don't forget that. In any case, our time is up. I think, thank you very much to all of 
the panelists for a very enlightening discussion. I think we set the stage for the second panel and we will leave it to the second panel to answer this question of how we can mobilize investors and how we can encourage investors to take on the risk. What is the role that the EBRD can play in this uh, area? So to our audience, please uh, don't disconnect. The second panel will start in three minutes. I'm Biata Javorczyk, EBRD's Chief Economist, and thank you very much for joining me for the first panel. And stay tuned to the second panel led by my colleague, Matteo Patrone. <laughs>